Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Good News of Grace. All right. Well, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you know how important the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, you know how important Israel was and is to God. But it's also very clear, both in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, that God doesn't only want to save Jews, he also loves and wants to save Gentiles. Now, one of the many ways that we know this is because of what the risen Christ said right before he ascended back up to the right hand of the Father. And so check out Acts 1.8. This is Jesus addressing his disciples. And he said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me, note this, in Jerusalem, okay, the capital city where all the Jews hung out, and in all Judea, that's the province of Judea, all Jews, and note this, what's the next word? Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so if Jesus only wanted to save Jewish people, he would have told his disciples, I want you to stop in Jerusalem. I want you to stop in Judea. But because God so loves the world, he said, I want you to take the gospel beyond Judea up into the area of Samaria, um, populated, by the way, with people who were half Jewish and half Assyrian, half Jew and half Gentile. And not only that, Jesus would say, because my father loves the whole world, I want you to go beyond the region of Samaria, and I want you to take the good news of grace to the end of the earth. And so it was very clear, God didn't just want to save Jews. He also wanted to save Gentiles. Now, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and the church was born, it is true that the church was 100% Jewish. But then as the disciples obeyed what Jesus said in Acts 1-8, and they took the gospel out uh, outside of Judea, up into Samaria, up into other parts of the Roman Empire, as missionaries went out, like the Apostle Paul, I mean, good night, Paul was used by God to take the gospel to so many areas of the Roman Empire. That happened, and because that happened, by the time you get to the end of the first century AD, what you find is that way more Gentiles believed in Jesus than Jews. In other words, the number of followers of Jesus who were Gentiles greatly outnumbered the number of followers of Jesus who were Jewish people. And so Paul was very adamant in all of his letters, whether it be Romans, uh, Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, any of Paul's letters, he was very adamant with this message. His message was, hey, God loves Gentiles. And Gentiles, if you're brand new to the Bible, that's anybody who's not a Jew. God loves Gentiles. And Gentiles can receive a right standing. I want everybody please to say right standing. Gentiles, even Gentiles, can receive a right standing with God simply by placing their faith 
in Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know that that message of Paul didn't sit well with a lot of Jews. Many Jews did not like Paul. They did not like his message, right? And so they would hear that a Gentile, a, a pagan, can get right with God, can, be, can receive a right standing with God by receiving Jesus. That's ridiculous. That's outlandish. And so their attitude was simply this. How can God accept a group of people who are not even pursuing righteous living, i.e. the Gentiles, and at the same time reject a group of people who do pursue righteous living, and that's the Jews. And so Paul knew that they would object. He anticipated their objections. And so with pen in hand, this is what he writes in chapter 9, verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? That, what's the next word? Gentiles. Who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of what? Of faith. But on the other hand, Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has, what's the next word? Not attained. You see that? Israel has not attained to the law of righteousness. Well, why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Paul now quotes from Isaiah 8, 14 and 28, 16. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah wrote, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Here's your first point, by the way, if you're taking notes. Israel tripped over the rock, Jesus Christ, because of their religious pride. So once again, so you understand what Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit to to write down in this this portion of the letter to the Romans. Um, Many of the Jews of Paul's day would say, time out, wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that we Jews who try so hard to keep all of the law, the laws of God and Torah, you're trying to say that we Jews have not attained righteousness, but the despised, pagan, idolatrous Gentiles who don't even care about pursuing a um, righteousness, who don't even care about God's law, that they have attained righteousness just by believing Trusting in Jesus, and most Jews would say, that's ridiculous. And Paul would say, it's not ridiculous, it's true. Here's why. Because God gave his son, he gave the world a beautiful gift, the gift of his son. And in the Bible, Jesus is called the foundation stone, right? God gave us his son so that we can build our lives On Jesus. How many of you, by raising your hand, are building your life right now on Jesus Christ? Just raise your hand. Okay. And so, man, you've accepted the gift. Great. Now you're taking the next step. You're building your life on Jesus. Um, But but Jesus is a Savior, and he's a Savior for sinners. And Israel didn't think they needed a Savior. They said, we're good enough. And so instead of building their lives on the rock of Jesus... Instead of building their lives on the foundation stone, here's what Israel did. They tripped over Jesus. They tripped over the one 
who God gave as a gift to the world. Let me put it another way. Imagine there were two men, a Jew and a Gentile, who decided to go deep sea fishing out in the Atlantic Ocean. And so they go out into the Atlantic Ocean, and they're fishing all day, and they get 40 miles offshore, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a big storm hits. And the storm is fierce, and the, the rain's coming down, the waves are coming over the bow of the boat, and the boat capsizes, and in the middle of all the confusion, let's say the boat is swept away by the storm. And so now, 40 miles offshore, you have these two men, a Jew and a Gentile, and they're just floating in the middle of the ocean. And imagine they've been out there for an hour, and then all of a sudden in the distance, they see a boat, and the boat's getting closer and closer, and the boat is driven by a man named Jesus. And Jesus sees the Jew, and he sees the Gentile, and listen to what he says. He says, hang on, guys. I'm here to rescue you. I'm going to throw out a life preserver, right? And the Gentile's like, oh, thank God. And Jesus, under his breath, is like, you're welcome, right? He takes the life preserver. He throws it out to the Gentile, the Gentile who represents Every man, woman, teenager, boy, and girl for the last 2,000 years who've recognized they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Gentile, knowing that he does not have it within him to swim back to shore, that this life preserver is the only way, grabs onto the life preserver, and that Gentile is saved by Jesus. But then Jesus takes the life preserver and he throws it out to the Jewish man. And the Jewish man goes, hey, it's okay, I'm fine. I'm a really strong swimmer, and so I can make it back on my... Thanks anyway, but no thanks. The Jewish man who represents Israel trying to be saved by their works says thanks, but no thanks, and eventually the Jewish man drowns. I love Warren Wiersbe. He's one of my favorite Bible commentators. Check out what he said. Here is the paradox The Jews sought for righteousness, but did not find it. While the Gentiles, who were not searching for it, found it. The reason? Because Israel tried to be saved by works and not by faith. You guys see what's going on in the Bible? When I was 17 years old, if you would have asked me, Mike, why do you think you're going to heaven? I would have said, because I'm a good guy. Right? I go to Mass every single week of my life. I say my prayers every night before I go to bed. I don't do drugs. I don't sleep around like a lot of my buddies at at the high school. So, of course, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But there was a problem. I was religious, but I didn't know God. See, I knew about God in my head, but I didn't know God in my heart. How many of you guys are really happy God loves self-righteous people, too? And so one day in my senior year of high school, a friend of mine, an evangelical Christian, gave me a little card that was in his pocket. I found out later it's called a gospel track. I read all these Bible verses on the gospel track, and I read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, everybody say grace. I was about to receive the good news of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
And all of a sudden, this self-righteous 17-year-old, I came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys believe you got to understand that you're lost before you can be saved? You see, I didn't think I needed to be saved before. I was good enough. I could swim to shore. But then all of a sudden, I'm confronted by God's word, and the Holy Spirit is working, and now all of a sudden, I come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not just thinking about the fact that I go to church and say my prayers and don't do drugs. Now I'm thinking about all the sinful stuff that I do. And I read on that track, the wages of sin is, help me out, church. And now I'm really sweating. And then, thank God, the rest of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all of a sudden, the light bulb came on, right? Because the Holy Spirit was working. The light bulb came on, and I realized I'm a sinner. I deserve death. Jesus came. God came, and he loved me so much, he died in my place, paid for my sins, and the third day, he rose again. And when I believed that for myself, listen, if you're with me, please say amen here. When I stopped trusting myself to save myself and started trusting in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit who was out here came inside of me, wave upon wave of God's love, and this self-righteous person was born again, saved, 17 years old. Because I'm so good? No, because God is so good, and he only saves people who come to him as sinners who realize his son is the only way. If this makes sense to you, say amen. Because here's my prayer. My prayer all week long has been this. God, I know there's people coming to the church. I know there's people watching online. I know there's people listening to the podcast. And they think that they have something to do with their salvation. And because they think that, they're being hindered from being born again. God, please turn the light bulb on and help them to understand the good news of grace. Israel didn't understand that. Look at what Paul said in chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be what? Saved. What does that mean? That means they were lost. Were they religious? Yes. Were they lost? Yes. Do you see how offensive the true gospel of grace can be to religious people? Have you ever talked to somebody about the gospel of grace and they, they cop an attitude? What are you talking about? Are you trying to tell me I'm not saved? And so, man, Paul's like, Israel needs to get saved. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so Paul cared so deeply for Israel that he prayed for them, God, please save Israel. God, please save Israel. Now, one of the reasons I believe that Paul loved Israel so much is because he could relate to Israel. Israel has all this zeal, but they don't have any knowledge of God's grace. And Paul says, I used to be just like that. I used to have all this zeal, but I was so, so dangerous because I had zeal without knowledge. Here's your next point. You're taking notes. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous, but zeal with knowledge, that's wonderful. And we see exactly that played played out in Paul's life. Okay, and so Paul would say, 
man, I was so proud of my Jewish heritage. I was so zealous, right, for Judaism. In fact, my parents had the money, and so I was uh, taught the law by the most famous rabbi of the day. His name was Rabbi Gamaliel. I sat at his feet. I learned Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from this famous rabbi. Later on, when I got older, I joined an elite group of men called the Pharisees. And man, we kept all the rabbis' religious rules to the T. I personally, Paul, dotted every I. I crossed every religious T. I was blameless. I was so zealous, but I was so dangerous. Because before, Paul would say, I met Jesus, I found myself taking the cloaks of a bunch of young, zealot Jews who had these big stones in their hand, and I gave my consent, my authority as a Pharisee, for them to take those big rocks and crush open the skull of a guy named Stephen. Well, what was Stephen's crime? He had the audacity to believe in Jesus. So I said, stone him to death. Paul said, I made havoc of the church like a wild animal. Man, I would kick down doors. I would arrest the followers of Jesus. I would take, I would rip moms and dads away from their kids. I had all this zeal, but I had no knowledge of grace. And so zeal without knowledge is very dangerous, but zeal with knowledge is very wonderful because Paul's testimony didn't end there. Paul's like, hey, I'm on the road to Damascus. You guys remember this, Acts 9? I'm going to go imprison more followers of Jesus. And I, as I'm on my way, Jesus Christ himself appears to me. And what happened was that Jesus changed Paul. Again, how many of you guys are so glad God even loves self-righteous people? And so Paul learns all about the good news of grace. Paul stops trusting in himself to save himself. And he starts trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save him. And what happened was he was converted. The Holy Spirit came down inside of Paul. It changed Paul's heart. And Paul began to grow in grace. And as he's growing in grace, now all of a sudden, his attitude is, man, now I don't just know about God. I know God. And I'm finding that I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only that, but as I'm growing in grace, Paul would say, I'm finding that I'm loving my neighbor as myself. In other words, instead of trying to hurt people that disagree with me, I'm actually loving people who disagree with me. Not only that, Paul would say, as I'm growing in grace, now the fruit of the Spirit is flowing through my life. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Paul would be the first one to say, if he was alive today, standing on this platform talking to you, he'd be the first to say that zeal with a knowledge of grace is absolutely wonderful. It'll change your life. But zeal without knowledge is dangerous. You see, zeal without a knowledge of grace will take people down a religious path that hurts a lot of people. How many of you guys understand that in the last 2,000 years, religious zealots have hurt billions with a B, hurt billions of people and murdered millions of people? How many of you guys understand that in past centuries, if you disagreed 
with the state church, they would burn you at the stake. That thousands of people were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church in past centuries because they disagreed with the church. And of course, in our day, we see radical Muslims. You don't agree with them, they shoot you, they blow you up, they run you over with a truck. Okay, what's going on? What's going on is that the bad news of religion is all about I'm going to hurt people who don't agree with me in order to cram what I believe down their throat. And that's not the way of God at all. When you have a grace encounter, you find that you're not trying to hurt people. You're finding that you're not trying to hurt people that disagree with you. You're actually loving them even though they disagree with you. And so look at verse 3 now. It says, For they, Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of who? God, okay, so if you weren't with us when we went through Romans 3, 4, 5, uh, you got to understand that the righteousness of God has nothing to do with our self-righteousness, has nothing to do with us keeping the law or doing good works. It's a gift that we're given through faith in Jesus Christ. So Israel was ignorant of all of that. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, or as a means to have a right standing with God, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, what's the word? Believes, okay? Here's your next point. Please get this. If we go to God based on our merit, we will be what? Rejected. But if we go to God based on his mercy and grace, we will be what? Accepted. And so once again, most of the, or many of the Jews in, in Paul's day would say, you know, we don't need a savior. We're good enough to be accepted by God. Look how holy we are, and look how sinful these Gentiles are. Wow. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, what's wrong with Israel in the first century AD? Why are they so arrogant? Why are they so self-righteous? But let me just say real quick, before you point at Israel, realize that when you're pointing one finger at Israel, you got three other fingers pointing at yourself. So let's just be real careful, right? Let's take personal inventory. I mean, when, when you drive by a poor neighborhood, if you're down in a poor section of town, and you look around, you see these houses, and you see the people. Have you ever thought in your heart, I'm better than they, they are. I'm better than they are because I live in a nice part of town. I'm better than they are because I have a nicer car than they have. I have more money. I obviously have my act together, and they don't. So I'm up here, and they're down here. Uh, be careful. Or have you ever driven by a prison and thought, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. Be careful. Be careful. You see, there's so much racism in America today. 
And you know why? It's because people have bought into the lie that because my skin is a certain color that I'm up here and everybody who doesn't have that color of the same color I have, they're down here. Um, Be careful. Or be careful, conservative Republican, that I'm so right and those liberal Democrats, man, they're they're so wrong and so I'm up here and they're down here. Be careful. Here's the truth. No matter what your political persuasion, no matter what your skin color, no matter how much money you have in the bank, no matter what side of town you live on, no matter your cultural background, no matter your socioeconomic background, listen, everybody in God's eyes is absolutely equal, and he loves us all the same. That's the truth. So be careful. Be careful. Be careful about demonizing people who disagree with you. That's not the heart of Jesus. Are you saying that I can't be a conservative? No, be a conservative. Please be a conservative, but be a compassionate conservative. And don't be ugly to liberal Democrats because they disagree with you. That is not the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is I love people who disagree with me. And so, man... You think the racism might go away if we actually taught what it says here in this book? Absolutely it would. If we had a conversion because we accepted the good news of grace, when we realized that everybody's equal before God, we're all sinners, we all need the Lord, and we absolutely stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting him, he comes in, he changes our heart, and now, just like the Apostle Paul, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love people as we love ourselves, and it all, all the junk, all the stupidity that we see on TV absolutely goes away. Thank you, ma'am. One amen in the back. We're going to continue now. You guys remember Luke 18? Remember Jesus told a story about two guys who went up to the temple to pray? A tax collector and a Pharisee. You guys remember that parable? And so the tax collector, a self-righteous tax collector, goes up to the temple to pray. And not only a self-righteous tax collector, but a broken-hearted, I'm sorry, a self-righteous Pharisee, but a broken-hearted tax collector goes up. And Jesus tells the story about how the self-righteous Pharisee Praise, and I love how Jesus says this, with himself. Let's listen to that. He prays with himself. What does that mean? His prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. They're not even getting to God. He's just talking to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this this, uh, tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And then this broken-hearted tax collector, he won't even look up to heaven, Jesus said. He's just beating his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that the tax collector went home justified, saved, forgiven, cleansed of all his sins. And the Pharisee did not. Why? Because Jesus says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see how God thinks? That's how God thinks. And so, look at verse 4 now, just so you don't misunderstand. For Christ is the end of the law. And people read that and they think, does that mean that 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy doesn't matter anymore? Of course it matters. It's God's word. You got to read the next two words. For Christ is the end of the law. What's the next two words? For righteousness. In other words, as a way to get saved. As a way to have a right standing with God. No, Christ is the end of all that to everyone who believes. Let me put this as clearly as I can. In one last ditch effort to get religious people or people who think that they have anything to do with their salvation, please, please hear me. You do not do good works to be saved. You do not do good works to stay saved. You trust Christ and Christ alone. And then when he comes in, here's what happens. You don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you are saved. Grace so changes you that all of a sudden good works are flowing out of your life. Why? Because that's the evidence of being born again. Here's two great words to help you remember the place of works. It's not earn. They both start with E. It's not earn. It's evidence. You don't do good works to earn a right standing with God. No, Christ is the end of all that. You are saved by grace, and then works flow as an evidence of what God has done in your heart. I don't know how else to say it. We're going to move on. Look at verse 5. Now Paul pits, distinguishes between the righteousness of the law in verse 5 against the righteousness of faith in verses 6 and following. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. Okay, here it is. Now Paul is quoting from Leviticus 18.5. He says that the man, inference or woman, who does those things, that's keeping the law, shall live by them, that word by can be translated or uh, uh, can also, you, you can use the word because, okay? So stay with me here at the end of verse five. We're quoting, Paul's quoting from Leviticus 18.5. The man or woman who keeps the law shall live, that's eternal life, because he or she keeps the law. God is very clear, Leviticus 18.5. He says, if you can keep all 600, I think it's 613, all 613 commandments in Torah, you're going to live forever. You're going to earn a right standing with me. You're going to live forever. But here's the catch. You got to keep all of those laws perfectly throughout your whole life. Has anybody ever kept all of God's laws other than Jesus? Has anybody ever kept all of God's laws perfectly? Yes or no? No. No. And so that's why we're sinners who need a Savior. And so, again, some people, and and I was like this. I was thick-headed, okay? And so some people say, well, Pastor Mike, I really think, you know, that God's going to grade us on a curve. And I know myself and I know other people. And I know that I'm pretty good, and I know that they're not. In other words, Pastor Mike, because I'm better than most people, doesn't that mean I have a better chance of making it to heaven than they do? And the answer is no. Why? James 2.10, you can keep the entire law and yet break one commandment of God. And James says you're guilty 
of breaking all the commandments. Here's your next point. Even if you're better than the average person, without Christ, you're going to come short of heaven. Even if you're better, in other words, you're more moral, you're more decent than the average person. Hey, when we compare ourselves to other people, we always look good, don't we? You can't compare yourself to other people. That's a wrong standard. And so even if we're more decent than the average person without Christ, we will come short. Everybody say short of heaven. I'll illustrate it this way. Imagine there's three guys that live in poor St. Lucie, and they decide they're going to swim to Africa. And so you got an 80-year-old man, you have a 40-year-old man, and you have a 20-year-old man. And they all decide tomorrow morning to jump into the Atlantic Ocean and head east to the dark continent. Okay, so the 80-year-old man, there he is. He jumps into the water. He's in pretty good shape for an 80-year-old guy. And he starts swimming, and he's swimming. And by the way, next to each of the three men, there's a boat following for safety. And so the 80-year-old man's going, and he actually makes it one mile. And then he's like, I'm done, I'm done. And so they pull him in the boat. The 40-year-old man, he's younger, he's in better shape. He swims five miles. And he's like, oh, man, I can't do any more. I'm done. They pull him into the boat. The 20-year-old happens to be an Olympic gold medalist in swimming. He swims for eight hours. The tide's with him. He covers 40 miles. And then finally he gets tired. He's like, I'm done. And they pull him into the boat. Question, did the 20-year-old go farther and do better than the other two men? The answer is yes. Next question. Did the 20-year-old make it to Africa? No. Even though he was a good swimmer, he still came short of Africa. What's the point? The point is that even if you're more decent than the average person without Christ, you're going to come short of heaven. Instead of trying to swim all that way, why don't you just grab onto the life preserver? His name is Jesus. He'll save you by his grace and his grace alone. Just grab onto him. Just take him. Make a big deal about him. Stop worrying about yourself. Just grab on to Jesus. Look at verse 6 now. In verses 6 through 8, difficult. Okay, so we'll get a little help from our friends here in a minute. But the righteousness of faith, okay, he's talked about the righteousness of the law in verse 5. Here's a different kind of righteousness. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Paul now quotes from Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And this part, by the way, is not in Deuteronomy 30. This is Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, giving a little addendum here. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? Addendum. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Verse 8. But what does it say? It says in Deuteronomy 30 that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And so again, Paul, 
quoting from Moses, Deuteronomy 30. Moses is there. This is 3,500 years ago. The children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses is preaching to them just like I'm preaching to you. And what he says to them is the law, the, the written word of God, the commandment of God, children of Israel, is not so far away that you've got to go up into heaven to get it. It's not so far away that you got to cross the sea in order to get it. No, God's written word, his commandment is very near to you. It's as close as your mouth, and it, it is as close as your heart. So Moses was speaking about the written word. Paul in Romans now uses that passage to talk about the living word, Jesus Christ, and his message is the same. Salvation through Jesus Christ is not so high up that you got to go up into heaven. You got to jump through hoops. You got to make a religious pilgrimage. No, you don't have to do any of that. It's not so far away. You got to go up into heaven to get it. It's not so far away. You got to go across the sea down into an abyss somewhere uh, to, to, to bring Christ out. No, salvation is very near. It's as close as your mouth, it's as close as your heart. I love also John Phillips. He helps me with these messages, check out what he says. Just as Moses had said there was no need for anyone to go up to heaven to bring down the law, so it's true that no one needs to go up to heaven to bring the Messiah down. Just as Moses had said there was no need for anyone to go across the sea to find the law, so no one needs search the depths to find the Messiah. Why? Because salvation through the Messiah, it's not far away. It's close. How close is it? Look at verse 9. That if you confess with your, what's the word? The Lord Jesus and believe in your, that God has raised him from the dead, you might be saved. Is that what it says? You, it's a promise. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In other words, if you take Christ, you won't be disappointed. But in the first century, they would say, but I'm a Gentile. The Jews despise me. Are you sure I won't be disappointed? Look at verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this is so cool. Stay with me to the end. Look at the way the ESV translates verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What language did Paul write in when he wrote to the Romans? Anybody know? Greek. Paul had a Bible. It was called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translated um, from the, the Hebrew Bible to Greek around the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, was the Bible of the Apostle Paul. Now follow this. The word, the English word Lord comes from the Greek word kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. When you take the Septuagint, the Old Testament um, um, that was translated from Hebrew to Greek, when you take that Septuagint, 
what you find is that the Hebrew word Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible, when the Greek translator, second, third century BC, translated the word Yahweh over into the Greek, K-U-R-I-O-S. Paul has the Septuagint. He knows that Yahweh is Kyrios, and he writes, if you confess, next screen please, with your mouth that Jesus, here's a proper translation, is Yahweh, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you guys get this? In the Hebrew Bible, his name is Yahweh. Translated into the Greek Septuagint, his name is Kyrios. That's Paul's Bible. Paul writes to the, to the Romans, and he uses the same word, Kyrios. We later translated as Lord. What, is, what are you saying, Pastor Mike? What I'm saying is that Jesus was and is God. Absolutely the son of the living God. Not, don't listen to the people who knock on your door on Saturday. That's another Jesus. They will tell you, if you talk to them long enough, that Jesus was created Listen, a Jesus who was created is not the true Jesus. And he's a Jesus who cannot save you. Who's the true Jesus? The true Jesus is the eternal son of the living God who came from heaven to the earth to rescue you, to throw out a life preserver to you so that you would stop working for your salvation and grab him and be taken home to heaven. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. But is he your Lord? Is he your God? Is he your Lord? Is he your God? This is radical teaching. And you think it's radical now? Try the first century. They would kill you. They would kick you out of the synagogue. You would be ostracized from the community. No more job. No more income. You're scum if you say Jesus is the Lord God. Now, after Jesus was arrested and taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. You remember this whole story. He was betrayed by Judas, arrested by the mob, taken to the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas, in his religious pride, begins to question Jesus. And that scene was dramatically captured in a movie called The Passion of the Christ. And so check out this two-minute video clip, and then we're done. Ana, 
Because the Jews lost their right to administer capital punishment, they couldn't stone Jesus. That was the Jewish way of execution. They had to hand him over to the Romans. And so they gave him to Pilate. Because Pilate was a coward, he agreed with the mob that was screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And he sent Jesus away to be scourged. The Romans whipped him viciously, opened up his back. They mocked him. They spit on him some more. They led him to a place in the Latin called Calvary. They nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. They lifted him up, and there God hung between heaven and earth. What did he do? He took all your sins and all my sins, every sin we have committed, every sin we will commit. He took those sins in his body on the tree. He experienced hell on the cross, and he died. Why did he die? Uh, So you wouldn't have to. Why did he experience hell? So you wouldn't have to, because God loves you. Three days later, later, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now he's praying for you, that you'll stop trying to save yourself, and that you'll confess him as your Lord and your God. He's praying for some of you who, you know, when it comes to, to Christ, I don't know. You're way over here. He's calling you. I don't know. I don't know. He's praying right now that you'll come and take the life preserver and have all your sins forgiven and become a child of God. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.